Okay, you guys ready to get started? Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for giving us time together. I pray that uh, you'd lead us uh, to truth. I pray that we would think rightly about you. I pray, Father, also that this wouldn't just be an academic exercise for us, but uh, you draw our hearts closer to you. I pray that you would give us a deeper love for you, a deeper love for one another, um, a deeper love for the lost, and understanding of how to communicate with them. And I, I just pray that we really would honor you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, what we're going to do is um, we have some questions to get us going as we hear what you guys want. Since it's a small group, too, we can just open it up to the floor, and anything you want to throw at us from the floor would be fine, too. Um, give you a couple minutes to think through what you want to talk about. Um, categories of things that we're thinking about. Theological issues, okay, so that can span anywhere within the Bible. Certain biblical texts that you want to talk about, you know, how, how would you interpret a text? Christian living, Christian life, how do we apply these things to our lives? Um, apologetics, how do we communicate things to others and ministry to others, that kind of thing. So those are the categories that we're thinking in. You're, you may have another type of question that doesn't fit in any of those, and that is fine as well. So um, let me give you just a minute to write out some of your stuff, and then Matt's going to Start by uh, you're going to do uh, the rest probably probably people uh, or sovereignty election. And election? Yeah. Okay, then Matt'll get us going just talking about election because that issue always comes up anyway. So we'll talk about election a little bit. All right, all right. So I'll give you just a minute and then get Matt going. Okay, you can keep working on these. And if other stuff comes up, we'll we we give you cards because sometimes there are questions you don't want to actually raise your hand and articulate. But if you want to, we can feel comfortable with that. We can do that as well. All right. right. Some of y'all may have been there at the end of the summer. I did a question answer in college class and there were about 50 questions that I didn't answer. So um, one of them was from Romans 9. Uh, It says Romans 9, 12 to 20. Question is, God hardens hearts to accomplish his will and he desires all to know him. How do we reconcile these two ideas? How can people whose hearts have been hardened by God justly be sentenced to hell? And related question it deals with the issue, it just it says, with predestination, you know, God elects, it seems, people in the scripture. We see that in Ephesians, but we also see that people have a choice on some level, or at least are called on some level, to respond to God in faith. So what's kind of the balance between God's choosing and uh, election? And uh, how do you fit those two together biblically? Uh, Romans 9 is one of the toughest passages, and that's kind of why... Uh, I want to start there. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn, you know, open up to Romans 9. We can look at that. We will start, uh, let's see, in verse 14. And I'll go down to verse 24. It says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? 
What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. All right, so as you guys are following uh, the book of Romans, and actually Brian and Blake are going to talk about the book of Romans for... The whole year or the semester? Whole year. Okay. So if you remember, kind of the first part of the book of Romans, chapters one through three, sets up man's sinfulness. We're all sinned. We're all destined for the wrath of God. Uh, Romans four and five begin to set up the solution, which is Jesus died for our sins, rose again. And, and particularly those who exercise faith in Jesus Christ are those who are saved from the wrath of God, right? So Paul makes that really clear in those first five chapters. And then six through eight talk a lot about the uh, transformation that comes into our lives when we believe in Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. It talks about now the new capacities we have, the new orientation we have to God. And then when we get to chapter nine, uh, something Paul kind of takes a different turn in the book. And the question is, if God is merciful and if God has uh, reached down to extend mercy to people through Jesus Christ, then what about the nation of Israel? All right, so for, for the readers, the question would be, you go back to the Old Testament, well, God seems to have called the nation of Israel as his special people, and yet most of them don't believe in Jesus. Particularly, well, still true now, but particularly at the time Paul is writing, the Jews were among the primary persecutors of Paul and of the, the Christian church. So the question is, has God abandoned his people? And so as he w- walks through Romans 9, that's really the question that's foremost, is what's going to happen to the nation of Israel? And as part of that, the question is, uh, doesn't it seem uh, unfair, as Paul is writing, that God would um, allow some people to experience his mercy and other people not to experience his mercy? Particularly, he, he walks into this deal of, if God is in charge of everything, then why is it fair? People say, well, I'm not responsible then, right? If God is sovereign over who goes to heaven, who doesn't, then I'm not responsible. And Paul answers that. And that's really what we're getting at here in Romans 9 is Paul answers that objection. And that's where he says, you know, who are you to talk back to God? Uh, what if God did this? He made some for honorable use. He made some for common use. Um, he demonstrated mercy on vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so he can make his glory known on vessels that he prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, and the question is, um, when it comes to election, that is, those that God has chosen to receive eternal life, how does God do that? And does that still mesh with the idea that we have some responsibility? Okay? There's a few ways to think about it. The, the real traditional kind of Calvinistic reformed viewpoint on this would be God looked at everybody before they were born, uh, before they did anything good or bad, and he said, these people are going to heaven and these people are going to hell. All right, so that's called double predestination. What they would say based really on Romans 9 is some people are headed this way, some people are headed that way, and it's because God elected people to either go to heaven or hell well ahead of time regardless of whether they responded to him or not. In other words, the reason they would say that we respond in faith is because we are elected. So that's kind of your classical reform view. The Arminian view on the other side of the spectrum would say... Um, Well, what really happens is election is God knew what you were going to do ahead of time. And so God chose you based upon what you would do. All right. And so with the Arminian view, it's much more leaning toward the area of your choice determines 
your eternal destiny, right? Uh, As I look at Romans 9, here's what I see. Um, A couple of key things to notice in Romans 9. Uh, When you get down to, let's see, it's verse 22 in particular. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, what, what doesn't come out uh, super well in that translation is that this is actually two different words prepared in verse 22 and verse 23 are actually two different Greek words. One of them is a much more active word um, that has the idea of God actively preparing something for a purpose. All right, that's the one in verse 23. In verse 22, what you have is a more passive type of word, which kind of means ripe or ready or set, okay? So something that is ready for destruction, something that is destined or already set aside, prepared for destruction, but it's not the active God prepared it for destruction, okay? So it seems like what you have going on in Romans 9 is you have a couple of things happening. You've got all of the human race that is, uh, as, as Paul's argued in the first part of the book, Romans 1 through 3, all of the human race is ready for destruction. Because, why? We've incurred the wrath of God because we rejected him, right? Because we didn't respond to the revelation that we were given. Out of this mass of humanity, it seems like what Romans is saying is in some way God has chosen some to receive eternal life. Now, on what basis has he chosen them? Well, we, we know it's not on the basis of what we've done, right? It's not on the basis of our works. It's not on the basis of any inherent merit in us. Romans doesn't really tell us on what basis God has chosen, except that he chose certain ones in order to demonstrate his mercy through Jesus Christ. And so what, what it seems like you've got going on in Romans is, Paul's, Paul's picture is this. It's not that God looks and says, well, these people are going to hell, these people are going to heaven. It's that everybody is running toward hell. All of us are headed in that direction, not because we're predestined to go to hell, but because we have disobeyed and disregarded God's revelation. But out of that mass of people, God somehow has chosen some. Now the question becomes, what is the mechanism by which God chose, right? Did he, does he simply say, yep, these people, these people, these people, um, why did God choose certain people and not others? The reality is the Bible doesn't really tell us that. But as we look at the concept of election, there's a few ways to look at it. The way that I, I am, am growing, as I'm growing even in, in my understanding of this, what I'm coming to see is if you look at like Acts 17, some of you guys were in college class on Sunday. We talked about Acts 17 and you know, Paul talks about how God has arranged the boundaries and the times of your habitation. Why? So that you might seek for him and come to know him. All right, so as, I, as I've looked more and more at election, even over the last few years, um, I'm beginning to understand election in the sense that God has created the world. He's created the circumstances of our lives. He knows you. He knows me. He knows how we will respond. But within those parameters that God has created, he gives us legitimate choices for how to respond to him. So I have a legitimate real choice just because God knew how I was going to choose and just because God arranged the circumstances doesn't mean it's not still a real, a real choice. It's not just an illusion of choice. I think we, we do have a real choice to exercise faith in Jesus or not. But God can arrange our world such that we choose in a particular way. All right? uh, 
uh, kind of a silly example might be if you walk down to Shipley's today, right? And they, they say they're all out of all the donuts except chocolate and glazed donuts, right? And you walk in and the shop owner knows you and they know that between those two choices, you're going to choose chocolate donuts every single time, right? So you walk in and they just get a box and they hand you the chocolate donuts. Well, it may be that if there was an option of sprinkles, you would choose that, right? I would, right? So it may be that that's the case, but that choice isn't there. They haven't given you that choice. Now, does that mean that your choice to choose chocolate is any less of a choice because there weren't sprinkles? Well, no, absolutely not. The circumstances have been arranged such that you will choose in a particular way. And so when I think about election, it is, I think God has arranged the universe. He's, he is sovereign in the sense that he's in control of the whole world. Um, but then when I look at a passage like Acts, I, I see, Acts 17, I see God has arranged things so that you have the maximum opportunity to respond to him. And that's critical. As you, every person, I think, has an opportunity because of how God has arranged the world to respond to the revelation they've given and then seemingly from Romans 1, from other passages in Acts, like um, uh, this guy Cornelius, who seems to believe in Jesus based on um, God sends him further revelation because he responds positively to what he knows about God. The Ethiopian eunuch is another example. This guy's reading the Bible. He wants to know God. God sends him Philip to explain the gospel. All right, so it seems like God has arranged things so that you will seek after him. Some choose to do that, some don't choose to do that. And in the context of those circumstances, I think that's where election comes in. God, God is able to choose certain people and not others. But why does he choose me and not this person? The Bible doesn't honestly really tell us the answer to that question. So anyway, I don't know if you'd add anything. Yeah, or, or any questions you'd follow up on that. Yeah, are you talking, let's see, you're talking about, um, yeah, verse 20. The molding, the thing molded will not say to the molder and then the, the potter. I, I, you know, I tend to take that as, um, as Paul's way of saying, it's a simple way of saying God made you, all right? So you don't have a right to question God's decisions, all right? I think it's as simple as, as that. However God chooses to make these sorts of decisions, you're not the one that makes the decision. I'm not the one that makes the decision because I'm, I'm a lump of clay that God made, and so, you know, out of, out of this lump, he says, all right, God made some that go to honorable use, some that go to dishonorable use. But again, he doesn't specifically explain the mechanism by which those choices are made. And so, yeah, I would say what I'm thinking these days about election, I think, would fit within that parameter. God still made the universe. He, he put it together the way he wants it. And yes, he knows how people will respond, but I think he still gives everybody uh, the full opportunity to respond to him. So... Yeah, um, you know, the best, the best passage I can think of is probably John 6, it's 44, yeah, which isn't, you know, it's actually talking about the Father more specifically, but no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, All right? And then when you, you know, you say, okay, how does the Father draw? When you get over into, uh, it's John, yeah, John 14, 26, Jesus begins to talk about the Holy Spirit, right? The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you, all right? And, and uh, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit all the way through really verse, or chapter 16, and talks about the role of the Holy Spirit. It seems like the role of the Holy Spirit is to draw people to know God. And so as, as you look at creation, as you 
interact with your own conscience and your understanding of morality as you interact with the gospel. I think God works through the spirit for an unbeliever to draw those people to know God, but those people are still responsible to believe in Jesus, right? And then for those who believe in Jesus, it seems like once you believe in Jesus, and this is Romans 6 through 8, the spirit is in those who have believed. If a person has believed, he has the Holy Spirit, right? If he, if he hasn't believed, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And so that's why there are some, like in a more Calvinistic view, that actually would say the Holy Spirit kind of takes over and overwhelms you and makes you believe, right? Before you are really a Christian, right? Before you've actually believed, the Holy Spirit indwells you. I don't necessarily see that biblically. What I see is instead, when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. And up until that point, what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's, he's talking to you. He's moving in your, in your life, in your mind, in your circumstances to point you to know Jesus. So you look confused still. How can the Holy Spirit speak to you if you don't have him? I think he speaks in a, in a number of ways. I mean, I think there is, a, there is a distinction in my mind between when the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, um, that believer has the capacity now to be controlled by the Spirit and to act in ways that are consistent with God in a way that he or she couldn't before. All right, so I think the indwelling of the Spirit allows the opportunity for full control of, by the Spirit in a way that you couldn't otherwise have had. Right? And that's Romans 8, really. That's what Romans 8 is talking about, is prior to knowing Jesus, you had no way to please God. You couldn't do it because you didn't have any capacity to do that. The Spirit gives you the capacity to do that. But I still think God speaks, and that's, that's Romans 1 talks about that. God speaks through creation. God speaks through conscience, and I think... God does speak on one level through the Holy Spirit and draws you. That does, that's not the same as being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, though. I think those are two separate things. So yeah. that's a good question. Yeah, that is. The difference in the level of intimacy and communication between the two, if they're friends with one another. You and I don't know each other, but we still speak with one another. Old Testament example, God's Spirit speaks to the prophet Balaam. Balaam's not a worshiper of Yahweh, but God still speaks directly to him. So God's not constrained. I mean, at this moment, God could say, you know, Matt's answer was really off base, and I'm just going to start echoing here in the room, and you're all going to hear it, whether you're a believer or non-believer. So there are a variety of ways. And you know, I think the, the key point to illustrate from Matt brought up John 6 um, about, you know, no one can resist when, God, when Christ is drawing, and then Christ will say, Later on, if I be lifted up, I will actually draw all men to myself. So what God's Spirit is doing in the world right now is, is drawing all. Not all respond to the Spirit drawing, whether it's through conscience or circumstances, or they stumble on a Gideon Bible in the hotel room, or, you know, friend witnesses. Um, variety of means through which Spirit speaks. I don't know if that helps at all. Any other questions about that related? Can I, can I back you up then a little bit? One of, one of the questions that gets asked periodically is, uh, what does it mean to be reformed? Mm-hmm. Capital R, reformed. And I, I just bring that up because irresistible grace figures into that issue. We are, we are all, as Protestants, at, in, at some level, reformed. We are beneficiaries of the Protestant Reformation. We're all, we all are a debt of gratitude to Martin Luther for um, helping the world see the, God's revelation from a little bit different standpoint. 
So we are all reformed in the sense of uh, we believe in uh, the inerrancy, inspiration, and authority of the word of God over the tradition of man or the interpretation that man has put on the word of God. We believe it stands independently. So we may this morning offer some interpretations of God's word that are not completely accurate. We, we trust ultimately God's word is true and reliable and authoritative, and our job is to seek to understand it constantly. We don't necessarily uh, blindly trust how men have uh, interpreted it through the years. So church tradition, church authority uh, is not the ultimate authority, nor is it even on a parallel with the word of God. We believe in the priesthood of believers. So I don't have any greater access to the presence of God than you have. I, I may have studied at a seminary, but that doesn't give greater access. All have equal access to God through Christ. Jew, Gentile, black, white, male, female, old, young, we have access through Christ, and we can represent Christ similarly to the world. These are things that uh, Reformation theology brought to the fore again in the discussion. Uh, salvation by grace through faith, not a matter of um, faith and works. Um, the moment that I believe I have eternal life, I'm not going to purgatory when I die. I don't have to make additional payments in purgatory in my suffering. Christ paid it all. When I come and I celebrate communion, Christ is not being re-crucified because he made a full and final, final payment on the cross. Okay, all these are things that we benefit from uh, the Reformation. Now, Reformed Theology, capital R, uh, came from Calvin's group of theologians, moved one direction. Lutheranism moved another direction. You had Anabaptists <laughs> move another direction. All beneficiaries of this, these fundamental Reformation ideas. But now when we talk about Reformed theology, we're largely talking about Calvinism. Okay, so the term has changed through the years. Calvinism is known. It's, it's not as simple as the five points, but that's how it's known. Okay, so five points uh, going with the acronym TULIP, total depravity, unlimited, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Okay, those five being the marks of a Calvinistic system. Uh, some would hold to four or three and a half. Uh, John Piper holds to seven. I'm not sure what the additional two are at this point. But, uh, you know, it's, that's the basic idea. Now, within that construct, um, I'm not completely comfortable with some of the, the statements or maybe even the way that they interpret some of those statements. Irresistible grace. As an example, the, the biblical term grace is not irresistible. It's completely resistible. Every time you sin, you are resisting the grace of God. So I don't think that irresistible grace is um, a good term because it's taking a biblical word and using it in a non-biblical way. My opinion, that's, that's where the system of theology known as reform theology gets off track and makes, makes things confusing for a lot of us. Um, let me walk you back through all of them. Total depravity means that uh, because of the fall, every aspect of your personality has been affected by sin. Your mind, the way you think, you're not going to think always truthfully. Your emotions, you're not going to feel things accurately according to reality all the time. Your will, you're going to have difficulty or feel as if it's impossible to make right choices at times. Your conscience, it's not always going to read situations accurately. My 
conscience convicting me when I'm sinning? Well, sometimes I'm not even sensing my conscience convicting me. My body as well, affected by the fall. All things affected by the fall. That's total depravity. Reformed theology would, a strong Calvinist would interpret total depravity as total inability. So there's a complete and total inability to respond to the promptings of God. Therefore, you must be regenerated before you can believe. Does that make sense? Okay. Total inability. You can't respond to God in your fallen state. So God must regenerate you, and you must have the Holy Spirit first, or you will not respond. And I would, I would just argue again, that's not the way the Bible lays out an anthropology for man. Uh, we will not respond unless God initiates. But when God initiates, he has created within mankind a capacity to respond to his drawing. We will not initiate with him, and we will not respond apart from his drawing, but we will when he draws. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 2 lays that out. You know, the, the sukkakos, the soulish man, cannot discern or understand the things of God. They're a mystery to him, okay? Apart from God initiating and revealing. And when God does, man can respond. So I don't agree completely with their definition of total depravity. Uh, unconditional election, I would not say it's unconditional. I would say it is unmerited election. We don't deserve to be elect, but God elects us. The experience, when we enter into the experience of our election, which I believe was from eternity past, but we enter into that experience when we believe. So I don't think unconditional election is the best way of saying it. I'd say unmerited election. Uh, Limited atonement is the idea that uh, Christ died to save only those who were chosen. All of this flows from their concept of sovereignty. Matt was just talking about, uh, I believe that God is sovereign. I believe it's clearly taught in the Bible. That means God has the right to do anything that he chooses to do, and he has the power to pull it off. He's sovereign. Okay. Now, how does he choose to execute his sovereignty on the earth? The only way that I know is I pick up the biblical text and say, how has God exercised sovereignty in the world and in history? And what the Bible reveals to me is God in his sovereignty said, uh, I'm going to make one particular creature man with a, a limited form of sovereignty. That is, because that creature is in my image, that creature will make real decisions with real consequences okay? in freedom. And to deny that, I think, is to deny what it means to be made in the image of God. But if you're in a Calvinistic system, sovereignty means essentially any choice that you make is just uh, an illusion. It seems like a choice to you and it feels like a choice to you, but God is completely deterministic and controlling in his sovereignty. So uh, the intellectually, intellectually honest Calvinist is going to take this to the logical extreme and say, that means ultimately God is the cause of evil in some form or fashion. Okay? Not just permissive, but if he's sovereign, he must be the cause of all things. A couple of years ago, um, Blake and I did a sermon on this and gave you guys some quotes from uh, a sermon that Piper did several years ago at Passion Conference. And he pounded the pulpit and he said, God ordains evil. God ordains evil. And what I do appreciate about Calvin or about Piper, even though I don't agree with him on certain things, is he's very honest about what he believes. He's not, he's not trying to couch what a Calvinistic system teaches in his mind. He's very upfront and honest about that. 
God ordains evil. One of the passages they use, I'll look up the reference for you in just a minute. Uh, it's in Isaiah or Jeremiah. Does not uh, both good and evil come forth from the hand of God? It's a very common passage that's used. And uh, the problem is it's a, it's a misinterpretation of the Hebrew word. The, the, the idea of ra is not just pure evil. It's often consequence of sin. And in the context, in the prophets, uh, the prophets are talking about uh, the fact that God has set up a moral order in the universe. And when men act in a certain way, there's good that comes. And when men act in another way, it's evil. It's not saying God is the one who causes evil to occur. But if you have a deterministic concept of the sovereignty of God, then if God wills it, it will occur. And I had a, a, a Calvinistic friend, and I asked him, I said, you know, can you, can you resist then God's spirit? Can you resist the will of God at all? And he said, no. So when you sin, you are cooperating with the will of God in some sense. Yes, because you cannot resist the will of God. Now, what that means in terms of limited atonement is this. If Christ died to save all men, all will be saved, right? It's the will of God. All are not saved. That's clear. It's all don't believe. Therefore, Christ did not die to save all men. Now, what you notice there, hopefully, is the way that I frame that issue determines the outcome. I would argue, biblically speaking, that the point is Christ died for all men, as opposed to saying Christ died to save all men. Christ made a payment for the sins of all people for all time. It doesn't mean that he died to save all men. I concede the point. He died in that sense. Effectively, it will save the elect. But he died and made a valid payment for the sins of all people, even those who reject him. So if you look in um, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, uh, we would agree with all Calvinists that who he's talking about right there are are non-believers. And the point is this. They deny and reject the master who bought them. That's the word uh, agarazzo. It means to to purchase or ex-agarazzo, to purchase out of the marketplace. Another phrase for limited atonement is particular redemption. That is, Christ only redeemed a particular set of people. But Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, says very clearly that he actually purchased all, and some deny the master who did purchase them. 1 John 2, as well, is, a, I think, a really clear passage in this regard. 2-2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath. He satisfied God's wrath for our sins, not only for our sins, but he also satisfied God's wrath against the sins of the whole world. Calvinists would answer that and say, well, that is the whole world of the elect. Okay, so not for our sins only, but for the whole world of the elect. The problem is, uh, again, if you do a good word study on this, in John's theology, world or cosmos is everything that is set against God. Okay, world of the elect is never in John's theology. World is anti-God. It's the system that hates God and rejects God uh, in every form and fashion. So 
limited atonement, I would clearly reject among the five points. But my, my overall argument would be, I think all of this stems from a misunderstanding of the nature of the sovereignty of God. Okay? Irresistible grace, again, I would say grace is not irresistible. You could maybe say irresistible election. Uh, the, those whom God has chosen will ultimately come, John chapter 6. Grace itself, uh, very much resistible, <laughs> very much so. Perseverance of the saints is um, sometimes devi- defined as uh, simply eternal security. Those who belong to God will ultimately be saved. But if you read um, Reformed theology, it's clear that what they mean by that is perseverance in a life of holiness. So, again, if God is sovereign and his will for your life is that you live a holy life, you will live a holy life. And if you don't live a holy life, that's simply evidence that you were not saved. Now, you press the Calvinist on this a bit, they'll say, well, of course you can sin some, and you can have periods of sinning. How long? Not very long. And in the end, you must certainly come back to God if you die in a state where you are sinning and rejecting and unrepentant, that is simply an indication that you were not saved. So saints will persevere in a life of holiness to the end, otherwise they demonstrate that they weren't saved. Okay. So from a really practical standpoint, what that means is you don't, you don't have assurance of salvation in this life. Or what I would argue is real tentative assurance. Can I know that I have eternal life? Mm, probably not until I take my last breath and I know there's no unrepentant sin. So if you look back at um, uh, a lot of Reformed writers, particularly the Puritans, really struggle with this because their theologians were also pastors. They're preaching every week, and their people are struggling with assurance of salvation. They wanted to give them assurance of salvation. So they really wrestled with this. How can we guarantee assurance? Because we can't stand in the pulpit and say, Christ died for you. Because we don't know. If you're not elect, Christ didn't die for you. So I can't point people to the cross and say, do you believe that Christ died for you? And if you believe, and you know that work is finished, you have assurance based on that fact, Christ died for you. I can't point them there because I don't know. They have to show some kind of signs that they're elect, okay? demonstrations of election. So they develop this uh, experiential or experimental, experimentally based assurance, and the elect behave like these in these manners. They display these things. And if they don't, then they're demonstrating they're simply not saved. Okay? But again, the root of that is uh, sovereignty of God and their understanding of sovereignty. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. In, in my experience, it's, it varies based upon the person you talk with. Most of them will not go so far as to say, they will do this, 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 and this. But it, because the challenge is once you do that, you can always find an exception, right? You can always find somebody who you go, well, this person, as far as I can tell, is a genuine Christian, but they don't understand generosity yet, and so they don't give to their church. Or this person doesn't understand sexual ethics, or maybe they are rebellious against God in that area of their life, and yet they, they know God, they, they understand the gospel, and they say that they believe it and they're in sin. And so when you begin to press, sometimes when you press real strong Calvinists with, okay, so tell me how much is too much, right? How, which sins disqualify you or 
uh, how much sin is too much or how long or whatever. There's, there's not gonna, you're not going to get a definitive answer to that question because there's always an exception to the rule, right? And so one of the challenges with a system, though, is if you press the extremes and you find that at, at the extremes there always is an exception to the rule, you might want to rethink the rule, right? And so that's, that's one of the, the biggest kind of points of contention. When you hear this debate between people who are more moderate, and what's interesting is we, as, like for example, as a church, we are not an Arminian church, but we are not a strongly Calvinistic church. Most people would probably classify us as a more moderate, you know, kind of we're in between. When you hear this debate, it's usually between folks like us and folks who are more extremely Calvinistic because the stronger debates actually come between people who are closer together sometimes than farther apart, right? The, the Calvinists kind of just let the Arminians go do their own thing and they don't bug them as much, you know? And so when you hear that debate, what you will often hear is it will center around that question though because there are biblical examples. The whole book of 1 Corinthians is a good example. It's a mess. The church is just a big mess. You know, they, they, there's people doing all kinds of things. They're using the Lord's Supper as an excuse for their gluttony. They are people sleeping with their family members, people, I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. And yet all through the book, Paul exhorts them as brothers and sisters and his response to them is church discipline. You know, I'm going to come down there and smack you in the head basically is his, his response. Not so much, you sure you believe in Jesus? He assumes they believe in Jesus. And that's the whole problem of the book is these are people who know Jesus and are living absolutely inconsistently with that profession. You know, uh, I was going to, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Let me take you back. You're, you're, uh, Matt's taking you forward into contemporary folks and how they would evaluate what's the list. If you go back to the Puritans, William Perkins in particular, he would, be, he would put it in fairly general terms, and it would be a, a warmness toward the things of God. So it'd be very, it would be very subjective. You, you come to church, and when you hear the word taught, something stirs within you, and you, you want that, and you're responsive to that. And when you sin, there's a strong subjective sense of shame and guilt and a desire to restore fellowship with God. Now, we, none of those things we would say are bad, which wouldn't say these are the tests to determine whether or not you have eternal life, okay? Because the test is, do you believe? So going back to Matt's original issue that he addressed, a person does not end up in hell because they're non-elect. Uh, a person goes to hell because they choose to disbelieve what God has revealed, so John 3.18 says, uh, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he's not elect? No. But because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Okay? But in terms of the experiential tests, like Matt said, everybody's going to have a little bit different. But if you look at the Puritans, it was pretty vague and pretty experiential. Pretty subjective. Yeah, yeah. The, well, it doesn't, it's not that even an Arminian wouldn't necessarily say our decision changes God per se, although, although some of the more real extreme ones might say something like that, um, but they would say God chooses on the basis of what he knows your decision will be. Okay, so, and I'm uncomfortable with going to that extreme because then it puts God's choices contingent upon my choices, which isn't what the Bible seems to present. On the other hand, the Bible does present we do have choices, and so 
no, God's choices aren't contingent upon mine, but my choices are very real and God has given us some. I, you know, when you talk about irresistible grace, one of the things I was going to say also earlier on that is the whole um, history of the nation of Israel is a history of people who resisted God's grace. That's the, that's the whole Old Testament, basically, is um, you look at Isaiah 6 and God says, Isaiah, I want you to go talk to this people. Um, keep talking to them, but they're not going to listen to you. You know, keep telling them what I'm saying, but they, they're not going to get it. And uh, because they won't listen. And uh, they're, you know, stiff-necked and they're rebellious. Um, and so if God wanted to force the issue with the Israelites, he could have, right? He could have. He loved these people. He chose them out. He could have made them obey. But instead, he sends people who uh, are called prophets. And they preach and they preach and they preach. If God wanted to force their hand, he could have. But by sending a prophet, he is offering them grace. And, and that grace comes in the form of, I'm not going to destroy your nation today. Right? So, um, but on the other hand, you look at Jonah, circles around Assyria, and uh, he says, 40 days, God's going to destroy the, the city. Um, and the people immediately repent. And what's interesting is Jonah doesn't even have to say, if you don't repent, God will destroy the city. He just says, God's going to do it. He doesn't, Jonah doesn't state the condition because I think the people know if God wanted to wipe us out, he wouldn't have sent this guy in the first place, right? If God wanted you dead, you'd already be dead. And it's like Jack Bauer, right? If I wanted, so, so, I mean, I think that's the issue is God's constantly extending grace, but the people of Israel constantly reject him. And that's the history of the nation. So when we talk about irresistible grace, if it is true that when God extends grace, we simply cannot resist him, then there's a lot of the history of the Bible that's hard to explain from that perspective. So, yeah. So I could be really... Me too, I go to Central, so... The, I think the biggie is that we do believe in election. Okay. Um, we do believe that God has chosen those that he will save. We may not completely agree on the mechanism by which he does that, or on the forcefulness with which he does that. But an Arminian really, uh, most Arminians don't, don't believe in, in election in the same way. Um, they, you know, they, when they talk about um, God choosing, it is always on the basis of something either inherent to the person or something the person is going to do. We do believe in, like Brian said, an unmerited election. If you want to call it unconditional, that's fine. But what we really mean is God chose based on nothing that you deserved or did or, or anything like that. And that would be the, that's the strongest difference that would separate us from, a, from an Arminian church. Neither Calvinists nor Arminians would accept us as part of their camp. Um, Calvinists would actually probably have a harder time with this because if you reject any of the five points... That in their mind, the five points all hold together. And if you pull a thread, you're not Calvinist at all. Whereas we'd say, no, I mean, we, we affirm the biblical doctrine of election and we affirm the, uh, biblically the responsibility of man to respond. Both and, we're, we're gonna, like Matt said, we're going to get into it later on. It'll be spring when we get into Romans 9 through 11. And my argument is going to be that there's no biblical author who ever tries to reconcile the two concepts. In fact, what you have in Romans is Romans 9, God is sovereign. Particularly in Romans 9, he's talking about sovereignty over the nations. Okay? Romans 9 is really, I think Ephesians 1 focuses a bit more on individuals. Romans 9 is 
God's moving through the Jews this way, through the Gentiles this way. He's talking much more so about groups of people. But his point is still God's sovereign. Romans 10, again, why are the Jews seemingly outside of the grace of God right now? And his answer is God is sovereign. Okay? And he's always chosen a remnant through which to work. And there's even a remnant now, Jews, right? Romans 10, Jews are responsible. You know, how will they hear without a preacher? Well, preachers came and they rejected. The Jews are responsible for their current condition because they wanted to establish their own righteousness and not accept the righteousness of God. Romans 11, God is always faithful to his promises. Did he make a promise to the Jewish people that he'd do something for them and through them? Yes, and he will. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now, how do you reconcile all that? Paul says, why don't we bend our knees and worship? Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. He's unfathomable. Amen. Next topic. I mean, that's how he reconciles, so to speak. So um, for, for us, we just feel very strongly that you need to leave the two in tension because there are verses even that lay them out side by side. You know, Peter's preaching, you know, you Jews are responsible for crucifying Jesus Christ according to the predestined plan of God. (laughs) Okay, there you go. No reconciliation. That didn't cause them any angst. It's just a fact. God is sovereign and you're responsible for your actions. Both hand. So here's Blake. Do you want to pick one up? Any other questions about related to that? Yeah. Um, let me define two things. Assurance is the subjective confidence that I belong to God, right? Eternal security is a biblical fact that if you believe, you have life that lasts forever. I would argue that your subjective assurance should be based upon the fact that you believe Christ died for your sins, okay? Not on, don't, I would not, I don't think the Bible ever encourages you to base your assurance on how you're living, okay? In fact, one of the big things that Christ fought against was very religious people basing their assurance on their religious performance. So the Pharisees in particular, he goes, you know, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, if you looked at them, you'd say, man, they're sheep. They've got fruit. Uh, In another place he said, you know, some people come to him and say, did we not cast out demons in your name? Yada, yada, yada. We did religious activities. So fundamentally, you didn't know me. You didn't believe me, right? Who do you say that I am? So I think assurance is based on this. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Because he did. You believe that finished work of Christ on the cross is the basis of your assurance. So when somebody's doubting their salvation, I take them back to the gospel. Christ died for you. Now, if you're a Christian and you have believed and you have eternal life, and you begin to uh, live a sinful lifestyle, you are turning away from the cross of Christ subjectively, guess what? Your, your assurance is probably going to be eroded. Why? Because you're not looking at the cross day in and day out as the center of your life. So assurance is going to be eroded. Now, what that means practically is my job is never to give somebody assurance. I don't, you know... I'm trying to assure you on a true basis, false basis. I'm trying to point you to the fact of the gospel and that the gospel applies to you. If you believe that, then you're going to have assurance. Okay? Uh, assurance is of the essence of saving faith. I believe Christ died for me. 
therefore I am assured. Make sense? What's, what's really fascinating about that, too, is it, he, he kind of brought it up, but Jesus' biggest opponents were not the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, but the, the religious people. And, and you see Jesus consistently knocking their assurance out from under them because their assurance is based on what they're doing. And so he constantly jabs at that. And yet, you know, John 8's a beautiful example of, you know, when he's got a person who's caught in a sin that ought, she ought to get the death penalty, Jesus extends to her grace. And then he says, now don't, don't do that anymore. But the basis on which he doesn't do that anymore is because she's just been given her life, literally. You know, and so she's been given grace. And it's on the basis of that, then, that she's called not to sin anymore. But he deliberately knocks away the assurance of people who are basing it on what they do consistently. I do find that, I find that interesting too, because the the issue back then was, it was completely different in a sense, you know, now Christians are wanting to discuss and debate who's in and who's out based upon their performance, right? But uh, Jesus, Jesus is welcoming the sinners and he's expecting sinful, broken people sin. I need to offer them forgiveness, you know, so it's just a, a very different concept, but religious people want to determine who's in the club and who's not in the club. You know what? Somebody trusts Christ. They're not going to magically turn around instantaneously. Uh, it's normal for them to grow in maturity. They may have some major failures, too. I mean, it's just, they may, I believe, given the fact they're made in the image of God, they have a limited form of sovereignty. They may resist the work of the Holy Spirit at times. I would say, though, that the absolute uh, non-negotiable is if a person trusts Christ and the Spirit dwells within them, they will be convicted of sin in a very different way than they were before. They'll experience conviction. Will they always respond to it? Uh, none of us do. I don't think I did this week. <laughs> there were things that came up and I uh, resist, resist. But if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you will experience conviction. And you should, and it's normal to experience growth and be transformed into the image of Christ. If you don't see that happening in somebody's life, that's not normal. There are one of two possibilities. They didn't really understand the gospel and they're not saved. You need to share the gospel with them again. Or they don't understand aspects of discipleship, God's discipline in their life, how to have fellowship and grow together, uh, how to have a quiet time and be in the word and let the word change them. There could be a believer who's captivated by sin and doesn't really understand how do I get through and past habitual sin. So it could be either or. If we're standing outside, we don't know, right? So I look at those folks and if I see that, you know, first thing I might do is present the gospel. If they can articulate the gospel to me, I've, I've noticed that, you know, in my history and working with people, that's a pretty good indication that they're probably a believer. If they can articulate it back. I've had a lot of people say, yes, I'm a Christian. You say, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they're clueless. Okay, completely clueless. So then we go back through the gospel. But then I've had other folks who they're really wrestling and battling with sin, habitual sin. And uh, they know the gospel and they believe the gospel. They just don't know how to grow and move through this. So it's an issue of discipleship. Blake? Uh, I will add one thing to that discussion while I was listening to you guys. There was one other evidence for faith that was given back by the Reformed guys and particularly the Puritans. Jonathan Edwards was kind of the most famous and well thought of writing theologian here in America's history, uh, Puritan. 
And he tried to answer this question, and he, brilliant guy, he went through all of the typical answers given by Perkins or some of these different guys, and saw, you know, all the outward manifestations that people are looking for to prove that they're a believer, you can fake all of them. You can go to church because your whole town goes to church, and you're going to be shamed if you don't. And you can do moral things because you don't want to be embarrassed by doing something immoral. So you can fake all those. One thing you can't fake, in his mind, was your affection. So... Uh, There's a very famous book he wrote, Religious Affections, in which he breaks down every possible means of determining whether or not you're saved until he gets down to whether or not you have deep affection, love for Christ above everything else in your heart. Well, the reason I share that is because I think you see a lot of his idea brought up in in John Piper and in a lot of the more recent reform guys. A lot of it comes Francis Chan, for sure. This idea that, you know, you could fake all the outward stuff. What it comes down to is this inward affection. And and I see that in a a lot of college students in particular, this expectation that I'm going to have some incredibly deep, devout affection for Christ. Um, Obviously, it is good to have a deep, devout affection for Jesus Christ. The problem with that system is it doesn't have a good anthropology behind it. Um, My affections, my feelings, my emotions are not just about what is true and what is spiritual and what is good. If my kids don't take a nap today and and, and are very disobedient, well, tonight, I'll be honest with you, my greatest desire is not going to be to be with Jesus. My greatest desire is going to be for peace at my house and to get some sleep. You know, it's just the, the stress and realities of life have dramatic effects on you. If you don't get sleep, it ends up dramatically affecting your emotions and affections because we're a material, immaterial whole. Our bodies and spirits are joined together. You can't control your emotions and feelings. So uh, where Edwards and Piper often break down is they create a lot of guilt for people unintentionally. They didn't mean to do this, but a lot of guilt that you have to always just be so in love with Jesus and um, longing for him so much. Well, that's not the reality for human beings. We can know the right things, do the right things, and we can't always control how we feel. So that's why, again, we would say both of the systems that say, um, you know, you're measuring it by your behavior or you're measuring it by your affections and feelings and longings. Both of those fall short. Really what we want to do is we want to point people, it's what you believe about Jesus. It's Hebrews 12, in the midst of all the sin and encumbrances and stress of life, you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus who ran the race before you. So that's always our answer. Do we know whether a person A or person B are saved or not? No, we don't know. That's between them and God, but we're going to always point them towards Christ. Don't analyze your emotional state because who knows what's causing it today. Um, and don't analyze your behavior, although there's time to think about your behavior, but that's not a measure of it. So it's kind of the other side of that. Uh, shall we move on to a different question? Um, can I do this one? Yeah, just, Here's one that was just submitted. This is a great one. Spiritual gifts such as physical healing, prophecy, speaking in tongues exist in the church today. If so, how is it edifying Either personally or collectively, what scripture point to this issue from either viewpoint? That's an excellent question. Um, We have to do a little bit of definition here. Do spiritual gifts, such as physical healing, prophecy, speaking in tongues, exist in the church today? Well, spiritual gifts certainly do. What we're talking about here are what would in scripture we typically think of as the sign gifts. So they're gifts where something happens that is clearly miraculous through a person. So either a person speaking a language that there's no reason for them to know or miraculously healing someone where there's no other explanation of it. Um, We're talking about the sign gifts. So do 
the sign gifts exist in the church today? And is there a passage pointing to that? And our answer would be, um, there's not necessarily a particular passage that we would point to to say whether they do exist or don't exist. What we would actually do is point you to the whole of Scripture and we would ask, when you look at your Bible from beginning to end, what are the time periods in biblical history where sign gifts are prevalent? In other words, where God is doing crazy things through particular people. So when does that happen? Well, you know, you think back to your Old Testament. Um, Moses, he does a bunch of crazy stuff. Uh, So lots of sign gifts that Moses is doing. Um, But then things kind of taper off. You got certainly miracles. God can always do miracles. But like a guy who does crazy stuff, not a lot for a while. And then we have uh, Elijah and Elisha do some crazy stuff um, right there in the middle of the Old Testament history. And then that kind of dies down. You don't have a lot of prophets doing crazy stuff. And then who do we have next? Well, we have New Testament. We have John the Baptist and we have Jesus. Lots of crazy stuff. And, and the apostles at the beginning of the book of Acts. But then later in the New Testament, we have less and less. And these sign gifts tend to taper off. There's people whom Paul can't heal. There's uh, much more of a focus on teaching and writing than on healing and doing amazing signs. So we look at that evidence and we go back and we ask, well, what is the, what is the thing that was always happening when there were these major sign gifts things happening? And in every case, God was identifying a new messenger and a new message. Okay, in, in each case where we had these amazing sign gifts, there was a change coming in God's relationship to human beings. There's a really significant message and a really significant messenger that those sign gifts raised up. So Moses, really significant. He, he is exercising those sign gifts to declare Yahweh to the Egyptian nation. And he's exercising those sign gifts to, uh, to validate his own authority with the Jewish people because he's about to give them the Mosaic Covenant, the whole law of the Old Testament. So God raises him up through these sign gifts. Elijah and Elisha, similar thing. Before Elijah and Elisha, the person who was really really in charge of the nation of Israel, who everyone was looking at as God's representative on earth, who was it before Elijah and Elisha? Do you guys know? Biblical history was the kings. So it's guys like David. Okay, the king was the man. He was the guy you looked to to lead the nation. Problem was, kings blew it. They blew it really bad. So God raised up a new type of person to run the nation. That's this prophet. These prophets who would really uh, re- would reveal God's word to the nations and be God's representatives in place of these kings who were by and large failing dramatically. And so the first of these two uh, leading prophets are Elijah and Elisha, and they get to do incredible things because God is showing the nation of Israel, I'm doing something new. It's a new message from a new person. Okay, and then, and then it's relatively quiet. And then John the Baptist and Jesus, well, clearly, big-time messengers, very new message that they're revealing. The apostles at the beginning of Acts, again, same idea. New message that they're revealing, this good news about Jesus' death and resurrection. So we see that pattern, and then we bring that forward to today. And we say, well, there's not a verse I can go to that says um, these sign gifts are finished. Uh, There's also not a verse that I can go to that says you should always expect these sign gifts at all times in every church. So there's no verse I can look at, but I can look at the pattern and I can look at what God does in the world through this pattern. And what I would say is what I would expect is in an established church context like churches in America. We've got a church on every corner. We have the Bible and multiple translations. People are aware of of what this Jesus guy is. They know what the church is. I'm not going to probably expect to see a whole lot of the sign gifts here 
at this time. Could happen. God is never limited, but it wouldn't fit the pattern. Where I would expect to see sign gifts today is when a missionary takes the gospel into a people who've never heard of God. When a missionary goes into a new context, they've never heard the name Jesus, they don't know what the Bible is, they're completely unfamiliar with any of this stuff, that, that would make a lot of sense to see some miraculous sign gift type things happen through that missionary. And sure enough, we'll, we'll hear reports all the time, I'm sure you guys have too, of missionaries going into completely unreached people groups and hearing of absolutely amazing things happening in terms of sign-type miracles. Dreams that are leading people to Christ, prophecies, healings, demonic warfare, all kinds of stuff that's just incredible because God works that way. He validates that messenger and that message. Now, all of that said, the one thing that I I do want to try to clarify with people is um, we're calling them sign gifts. We're not saying supernatural gifts. Some people will ask me, well, have the miraculous gifts ended or should we expect to see the miraculous gifts here today? And we have to be careful because in that question, we have just assumed that all of the other spiritual gifts like uh, teaching, compassion, mercy, giving, that all of those are somehow not miraculous. Whereas when you look at scripture, actually... Those are all miraculous. When a believer gives sacrificially to someone, that's a miracle of the same order as if they touched a person and healed them from cancer. Because for a person to give sacrificially from the heart to another person, that is truly a miracle of the Holy Spirit at work in that person. So are the miraculous gifts present today? Absolutely. You all have miraculous gifts. And Lord willing, through the Spirit, you're using them all the time because that's how the church functions. You have miraculous gifts. I just wouldn't expect to see a lot of the sign miraculous gifts. A lot more of the, uh, maybe you call it normative miraculous gifts, the ones that the church needs at all times. One thing also, Blake brought this out a little bit, but a couple of deals. We are, you know, some churches or organizations are what you might call a strict kind of cessationist is the term, basically where they would say these sign gifts have ended and they are, they are gone. Like they, they, have, they ended it in the first century. We don't believe that they happen anymore. We're not, as a church, a strict cessationist church in that sense. We believe, the, the basic reason is we think God can really do whatever he wants to do, right? So if he chooses to revive those gifts, like Blake's saying in a certain context, if he chooses to revive those gifts tomorrow at Grace Bible Church, he can do that. We're just saying, as we look at the patterns in Scripture, this is kind of what we see. And so we don't believe that these gifts are normative right now in our context, but that doesn't mean that they can't come back. And the other thing that he brought out that I would just kind of reemphasize is that also doesn't mean that God doesn't work miracles. That's a double negative there, but God still does miracles, right? Um, And uh, if we were to go around in this room, I'm sure that many of us in this room would have testimonies of things that we have seen or heard or talked with people about that are legitimate miracles where God healed a person in a miraculous way or something happened that you go, I can't explain that in natural way, in a natural way. God did something in response to a prayer that was clearly outside the natural realm. Um, but that doesn't mean that it was because the person who prayed for it or was the operative of it had the gift at that point. What we're talking about is, is there a particular individual that says, I am a healer and I've got a gift of healing. That's a different thing from God healed this person because the church prayed for this person's healing. So those are, those are separate questions. So. Oh, I can't remember what the book is, but... Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, theoretically, yeah. Sign gifts would have been 
dying off. And the, and the problem that Paul is addressing is a, a misuse of a good thing. So when he goes into the church in Corinth, there's uh, chaos. And he says, that's not church. That, that's not appropriate. So then he gives them prescriptions on the use of all gifts. And the fundamental idea that he's saying is, first, all gifts are for the edification of the body, not the individual. So practically today, somebody tells me, I have a private prayer language. It's just for me. And it's the gift of tongues. I, I say to myself, I don't know how to say them, but I, that's, not, that's not biblical sign gift tongues. Because every spiritual gift is for the edification of the body, not the individual. So Paul says, I'm not going to forbid speaking in tongues, but I'd rather speak 10,000 words with my mind than one with a tongue. If you're going to use tongues, one or two people speak in order with an interpreter. So I, you know, when folks come to me and say, I have the gift of tongues, whatever, I just say, why don't you just make sure you use it biblically? And let's look at what it means to use it biblically. And, you know, and I tell them, given the fact that we've got, you know, an hour and 15 minutes a week to be together as the body of Christ often, and Paul says the ratio should be about 10,000 to one, we're just not going to have time to say, this is the tongues period in our worship service. Okay? And we have had a hard time identifying interpreters of these things. The sign gifts were literally for signs. So you look in Acts 2.22, Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you also know. And then again in uh, Hebrews 2 verse 4, God also testifying with them, that is the spokesmen, the apostles, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Sign gifts are four signs to validate this message. Pentecost is a perfect example. It's Jews from all over the known world, right? And they come together. They all speak their native languages. They all also speak Aramaic and probably Greek. So if the goal was communication, Peter could have spoken Greek or Aramaic, and everyone would have understood. These guys, these apostles all bust out in different tongues that they don't know as a sign. Then guess what happens? Tongues dies down. Peter speaks in one language. Everybody understands. Okay, so it, was, it wasn't, tongues weren't a necessity for communication. They were a validation for this new message. That's the point. So that's why, you know, again, we'd say, I think that you're going to see an eruption of sign gifts again as prophecy moves forward, as God begins to move us toward rapture, tribulation, so forth. I think that you probably see those as validating this is God and what God's doing. That's an excellent question. Uh, The passage you're talking about is 1 Corinthians 14. Um, And you guys may have a different opinion on this. 1 Corinthians was written very early in Paul's ministry. So I would, and it has a lot to say about these signed gifts. Um, when I look later in Paul, like especially the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, as, he, as his life on earth is winding down, I, I don't see anything about this. So it is my best guess that First Corinthians came at a time, like Brian was saying, where the, there had been this growth of the signed gifts. Um, this is when Paul is taking the gospel first into the Greek world. Um, there's a lot of that going on. And so he says that, and then later in his ministry, in more established contexts, 
he, he doesn't repeat that exhortation, and you don't really see anything about signed gifts towards the latter parts of his ministry. Directly, though, into that, that passage, 1 Corinthians 14. He says, uh, pursue love, it's an imperative, yet earnestly, uh, desire earnestly spiritual gift, especially that you may prophesy. And he's going to tell, why do I want you to prophesy more than tongues? Well, the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands, but his, in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. Paul's point in this whole section is he is sarcastic, and you will never interpret 1 Corinthians properly unless you understand that Paul is very frustrated with this church and he is frequently sarcastic with them, particularly on their use of, of spiritual gifts. Okay? You got immorality in your church and yet you think you're spiritual because you got all these gifts. No, no, no. Uh, and tongues, you're using them improperly. The unbeliever walks in and he hears crazy chaos that doesn't draw him to the Lord. No one interprets. So who's edified? You're edifying yourself. He's not saying, way to go, at least you're edified. He's saying, that is exactly the wrong use of a spiritual gift. Spiritual gift is for the edification of the body. He is slamming them for self-edification. So the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. Okay, you want people to understand. But in his spirit, he speaks mystery. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. The one who prophesies edifies the church, edify the church. And by prophecy, he does not mean here telling the future. He means proclaiming the word of God. So proclaim the word of God in a language that everybody knows so everybody can be edified and stop thinking you're spiritual by doing something that just edifies yourself. Okay, so I think that's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14. We just got the signal at the back of the room that our session is done. It's break time. Uh, we'll start again. And We didn't get to all your stuff, so if yeah. you want to If you want to come back, around. we'll start with uh, questions about creation. Looks like and a few Somebody wrote, uh, discussed Leviticus 19. If you wrote that, would you come up and tell me specifically what you want to talk <laughs> about in Leviticus 19? So We'll start again in five or ten minutes.